Well, good morning, New Day. It's so good to see you guys. Thanks so much for coming out. To everyone who's tuned in online, we're so glad that you're with us as well. Before we get going, I just like to say each week that however you're joining us, I am truly glad that you're here. It's such a privilege to get to teach you the Word of God week in and week out. So again, thanks for being here today. For those of you who are new right now, as a church, we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We've been taking it one section at a time, and that's brought us to the section we're covering today, which is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, where Jesus teaches us on the subject of church discipline. Now, I realize the title sounds super intense. Um, If I had to give it a secondary title, it would be how one Christian shows love to another Christian. And I think that will be overwhelmingly clear uh, as we work our way through our text. Jesus is six months or so away from his death on the cross in Jerusalem. And he has been spending more and more time teaching his disciples, teaching the 12 privately how things ought to run in the church once he's gone. Remember, he's going to die on the cross. He's going to be buried. He's going to resurrect from the dead. And then he's going to ascend back to heaven. And when he sends the Holy Spirit, uh, the church is formed. And in the text we're studying, not just today, but in the text we've been studying over the last few weeks in Matthew 18, Jesus is giving instructions to those who will lead the church once he's gone so that they will know how the Christian community ought to behave and how they ought to conduct themselves in Jesus's absence. And that's what we see in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus giving yet more instruction on how the church ought to be once it's established. Specifically, the question that Jesus answers in our text today uh, is this. What happens When a sheep in our flock, meaning a believer in our church, gets caught up in sin, whether it's unintentional, whether it's through willful disobedience, Jesus is answering the question, what do we do when a believer gets caught up in sin? Here, of course, we're not talking about when a believer sins, acknowledges it as sin and repents. No, we're talking here about the person who gets caught up in perpetual unrepentant sin. And Jesus, big picture, is going to tell us today that when we see another believer getting caught up in sin, we're not to go around being the Holy Spirit police looking for someone in violation of God's law, but when we see something and it comes across our path, Jesus is going to tell us that we have a responsibility to do what we can to steer that person back towards the path of God. Last week, Jesus used the illustration of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and he says one of them strayed. And the straying sheep was representative of the follower of Jesus who strays and gets caught up in sin. So the question isn't, uh, is this going to happen? The question is, what do we do when it does? 
And again, Jesus says, we have a responsibility. I hope you'll tune in and pay attention today. I hope you'll jot down some notes as we go through the lesson, because Jesus is going to be speaking directly to you and to me, telling us our job description when a fellow believer gets off track. Now, I love this about Jesus. Of the many things I love about Jesus, I love that Jesus is so counter to the culture that we live in. When someone makes a mistake in our culture, uh, what do we do? What does culture do? Cancel them, right? Oh, you made a post back in 1972, and uh, you know, uh, sorry, I know you feel differently now. I know you were 16 when you made the post, but you know what? Sorry, you are forever canceled. In our culture, you make a mistake and you get canceled. In Christendom, when you make a mistake, the body of Christ is set loose to chase after you and to lovingly confront you and to pursue you with the love of Christ until you get back on track or until the relationship has to be broken because you simply refuse to do so. So this is going to be a great lesson. Again, I hope you'll pay attention. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus lays out for us what we're going to call the process of church discipline. But I'm telling you right now, if I just dived right into our text and started explaining the process of church discipline, it really wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. There's some backstory, there's some information that you need to have in your minds and in your hearts first, so that when we get to the process, it'll actually make sense. So today, we're not going to begin with our text, the process of church discipline. Today, we're going to begin with the precedent of church discipline, and then the purpose of church discipline, and then we'll get into, thirdly, the process of church discipline. So let's do that. If you're taking notes, here's your first fill in the blank. The first thing we need to address is the precedent of church discipline, which the Apostle Paul sets for us as he speaks to the issue in the church at Corinth, that was this. There was a man in the church. He attended the church. No doubt he was on the dream team. He invited his friends. He gave tithes and offerings. Yet, being a professing disciple of Jesus, he was sleeping with his stepmother. Yeah, you don't need to watch Jerry Springer. Just read the Bible, okay? Let's read what he says, and I'm just letting you know it's kind of long, but bear with me. Paul says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother, and you're so proud of yourselves, but you should be in mourning and sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I'm not with you in person, I am with you in spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I'll be present with you in spirit. And so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed. And he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. You're boasting about this This is terrible because they were being tolerant when they shouldn't have been. So Paul says, you're boasting about this This is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. 
When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. And the idea is sinning and who are not repentant for doing so. Verse 13, God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Paul here says, when you have the situation where someone in the church who professes to be a disciple of Jesus is living in open, outright, unrepentant sin, you're to do two things. The church is to pass judgment on them in the following two ways. Number one, they are to excommunicate him from the church. Paul said this four different times. But as one example, back to verse two, put out of your fellowship the man who did this. That's excommunication. And then number two, not only are they to excommunicate him, secondly, they're also to shun him. This goes back to verse 11. You must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, meaning a brother in Christ, meaning a Christian, yet who practices sexual immorality or practices greed or practices idolatry or practices slandering people or practices drunkenness or, or practices any of these other sins. Paul says, with such a man, do not even eat. And this judgment of being excommunicated and shunned is to stand until repentance takes place, at which point the individual is to be welcomed back into the life of the church and is to be re-engaged in terms of social interaction. Now, this may seem harsh, but that leads us nicely to the second thing you need to know before we get to our text, and we'll call this the purpose of church discipline. The purpose of church discipline. Now, I know it seems harsh. Talk about church discipline. Talk about excommunication. Talk about shunning like the Amish do. I know it seems harsh. But why is Paul here being so intense about this? Why is he saying to take such extreme measures when a believer gets wrapped up in sin? Well, he answers that question in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. He says, take such extreme measures so that the sinful nature of the unrepentant person might be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Translation, you got to be intense about this and you got to follow excommunication and shunning because this is what God says is the best way for you to have the best chances of getting that person to turn from the path that leads to hell and to get back on the path that leads to heaven. When someone through willful disobedience puts themselves on a path that leads to hell, it's impossible to be loving towards that person while we don't say anything and we just let them keep walking down the path. 
And friends, here I'll highlight for you, again, talking about culture today, the culture we live in says this, if someone is caught up in sin, whatever it might be, you should approve it, you should affirm it, you should encourage them in it. If they're on the path that leads to hell, just make sure that you make them as comfortable as they can possibly be as they careen towards hell. And then our culture defines that as being loving. Well, friends, do you know that the Bible would define that as being hateful? God has a definition of what love is and what it means to be loving, and culture has a definition of what love is and what it means to be loving. And these two definitions and these two approaches could not be more uh, opposed to each other. So we have to understand this. So what we do when someone's off track then is we don't despise them. We don't treat them, in other words, as if they have no value, uh, meaning they're not even worth following up on. They're not worth being confronted. They're not worth going after to try to bring them back into the fold. But friends, they are. And that's why in love, we're to go after them. Okay, number one, you saw the precedent of church discipline. Number two, you saw the purpose. It's to get them back on track. And now, finally, we can get into our text today. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. And we'll call this the process of church discipline. The process of church discipline. In our text today, Jesus says, when another believer, it could be a friend, it could be a family member, it could be someone in your small group, it could be someone on your serving team. And again, you're not to be the Holy Spirit police uh, looking around with binoculars to look for infractions and you know, violations in other people's lives. It's not about that. But when you see that someone's gotten off track, Jesus says, you need to go through a series of loving confrontations where the goal is to get that person back for God. And in our text today, Jesus describes each confrontation, each step in the process that will lead in one of two ways, either to repentance or to excommunication. So let's go through it. Step one is found in verse 15. And if you'll take a look there with me, you'll see that Jesus says this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. I remember years back, I had just one such situation someone who I had been witnessing to for many years, all growing up, in fact, finally accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, prior to coming to New Day, this person had never uh, come into a church, never been in the church service, never heard the Word of God preached. So when I say he was new uh, to things, he was new to things. But he began coming, he began learning what it meant to follow Jesus. And in the process, he met another new believer at our church. And they fell in love, and they got engaged, and they went ahead and set a wedding date one year out. But friends, this was not someone who was brought up in church. They had been inculcated by the values and the morals and the worldview of our culture. And so to them, it was just natural as can be. Well, we're getting married in a year, so of course, we're just going to move in together now. And so in the spirit of Matthew 18, 15, 
I went to my friend and I just said, hey, do you think we could grab lunch, my treat, of course, and I just kind of want to talk to you about this decision that you've said you're going to make. Let's just chat about this. And so we went out to lunch and we just got to chat and I said, hey, you're now a follower of Jesus. What that means is you are now a learner of the words and ways of Jesus. You got to learn them and then live them. And, and I realize you're in love, and I'm so happy about that. This is a wonderful thing, and I'm so glad that you've set a wedding date in the future. But listen, to move in together now means that for the next year, you're going to be living in sin and rebellion against the very God who's just saved you. And I said, look, I understand you want to wait till later for a big, huge, invite everybody in the world to the wedding. That's great. But listen, why don't you let me marry you now so that you can be good with God between now and then? And not because I twisted his arm, not because I applied pressure and coerced and whatever. He had a genuine desire to follow Jesus. And he wasn't planning on moving in because he was in rebellion against God. He was planning on moving in because he just didn't know any better. But friends, here's the deal. That's the case with a lot of people. They begin following Jesus. They come to church. They just don't know any better. They've been indoctrinated with the values and morals and worldview of our culture, and they don't just immediately overnight adopt the morals and values and worldview of Christ. And so what do they need? They need disciples of Jesus who will fulfill their responsibility before God when they see someone off track in their walk with God. They need a little coaching. They need a little help. And friends, God wants to use you to be that person in someone's life that helps disciple them. You'll never see any scriptural support in all the Bible that this is the job of the pastor. Oh, the pastor plays a part, and we'll get to that, I think, in steps three and four. That's where the pastoral staff comes in. But man, steps one and two, that's 100% on you. Did you know that? So again, back to... Hope you pay attention today. Jesus is speaking to you directly. Now, admittedly, the way things worked out so well with my friend, he was receptive. He said, I want you to marry us now. I don't want to live in sin. We did a small little inexpensive wedding over dinner at a restaurant. They got married and they kept following Jesus. And then I went and did that big public wedding for them a year later. Now, it worked out great with him. I wish I could say, and it'll work out this way every single time, where they're receptive, they're appreciative, uh, they're thankful. Doesn't always work that way. And when it doesn't, that's where step two comes into play. So let's look at it. It's found in verse 16. Uh, step one, verse 15. Step two, verse 16. Jesus says this, but if he, the unrepentant sinner, will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, let's pretend I went to my friend and I tried to confront him and he was just like, Mike, that's just your opinion. Well, in that case, I would need to go grab one or two other people and I need to come back and say, hey, this is not me coming against you. This is not a matter of opinion. Uh, this is what God's word says and you're out of bounds right now with the way the Lord says disciples of Jesus ought to live. I remember just one such situation uh, shortly after I graduated Bible college and became a youth pastor in Cumberland, Maryland. There was a student there who clearly loved the old youth pastor and clearly did not love me. He served on production 
And every little thing I asked him to do, every little tweak or change I asked him to make, he's like, oh, we tried that. You know, it's not going to work. We can't do that, whatever. And he was insubordinate, obstinate. He was stubborn as can be. He was disrespectful. He was, and so I met with him in the spirit of Matthew 18, 15. And I said, hey, this is behavior here. It's unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. Uh, you're not the leader. I'm the leader. This is a responsibility God's entrusted to me. We're going to go in the direction that I feel led to go in. And I'd love for you to come along. But if you can't, I understand. But you can't keep serving on the team. So we have got to make this change. But he did not listen. He wasn't receptive like in the last story I told you. So I grabbed one of the youth leaders named Bob. And I said, Bob, can you help me out? And Bob said, Absolutely. So we went and we approached him and we had a second meeting, but this time Bob led the way and he said, Hey, Tim, Mike's not coming against you. He doesn't have it out for you. He's not just making stuff up. This is not a matter of opinion. I too have witnessed the disrespectful behavior, the insubordination. You're off track. This behavior is unbecoming of a disciple of Jesus. And if you want to stay in the role, you got to get back on track. And we did that in the spirit of Matthew 18, 16. If they don't listen at the first confrontation, you take one or two along with you and you give it another try. Now, things unfortunately did not work out with Tim. And sometimes things won't work out with you. And if that's the case, that's why Jesus gave us step three. If you still can't get through to him after this second confrontation, Step three is found in the first part of verse 17. Take a look with me. Jesus says, if he, the unrepentant sinner, refuses to listen even to them, even to the two or three that have now come for a second confrontation, if that happens, then here's what you do. You tell it to the church. So this is where the leadership of the church is informed, not for the purpose of gossip, but for the purpose of the leadership of the church telling everybody in that person's sphere of influence what's going on so that everyone in that person's sphere of influence can begin chasing after them with God's loving kindness, urging them, pleading with them, please, you're in the wrong. We love you, but you're in the wrong come back to God. I'm not a big mechanic guy, as some of you uh, may be here today or tuning in online, uh, but one time I had to change a, a lug nut, I think I'm calling it the right thing, the lug nut on the tire. And I took the crowbar, I think it's called. I know what a hammer is, the rest, I'm not sure. And I took that crowbar though, and I just started applying the pressure and the thing did not move at all. So now I applied even more pressure and the thing still did not move. So now I had to put all of my weight and I'm a big dude. I put all my body behind it and I applied even more pressure. And with that maximum amount of pressure that I could exert, finally, boom, that lug nut came loose. Basically, Jesus is saying to us, keep applying more pressure until that person decides I want to be come loose from my sin. You start with a little bit of pressure, just one-on-one, -on -one, then you add a little bit of more, taking one or two people along with you, and if that doesn't work, now the leadership of the church just unleashes everyone in the church in that person's sphere of influence so they can all chase after them, trying to get them to repent. Now, let's imagine that that's you. Someone came to you one-on-one, -on -one, then 
That person comes back bringing one or two others along. Then all of a sudden you got 15, 20, 30 people calling you, texting you, emailing you, asking, hey, can we talk after service? Hey, after small group, what's out? Do you think that we could you know, just talk for a minute? And how do you think that person feels? That person feels loved. And many, many times as you walk someone through these steps, applying uh, an increasing amount of pressure as you go, a lot of times it results in the person turning back to God. Friends, let me share this by way of encouragement. Jesus doesn't give us a process to follow because it doesn't work. He gives us a process to follow because it does. In the vast majority of instances, people are turned back to God. I've seen it happen time and time again. Of course, the process doesn't work if we refuse to step up and take part in it. But when we do, you work the word and the word will work. Unfortunately, though, it will not work every time, even if it works in what you might be able to argue would be the vast majority of the time. And when, despite your best efforts, despite applying more and more and more pressure, that person still will not break free and become loosed from their sin, when that tragically happens, well, that's when step four comes into play. And step four is found in the latter part of verse 17. Take a look with me if you would. Jesus says, and if he, the unrepentant sinner, refuses to listen even to the church, meaning to like the 20 or 30 people in that person's sphere of influence that are all coming after them, trying to tell them you're in the wrong, you need to repent. If, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, friends, a Gentile was a non-Jew. But by virtue of the fact that they were pagan, they were not included in weekly worship services nor did the Jews uh, interact with Gentiles on a social basis. Likewise, a tax collector was a Jew who had betrayed his own people by signing up to work for the Roman authorities in collecting taxes. And the tax collector, just like the Gentile, was not a part of weekly worship services, nor did the Jews at large uh, interact with the tax collector socially. In fact, no one did and no one would. So when Jesus says, if they just flat out refuse to repent and they're choosing their sin over righteousness, then you've got to do two things, excommunicate them and shun them. We know that this is what Jesus was getting at because this is exactly how the Apostle Paul applied Jesus' teaching here to the situation at Corinth where the man was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Sorry, his stepmom. I know it's hard to keep track of these sordid details. So Jesus is talking about ostracizing them from the weekly church service, ostracizing them from Christian fellowship. Again, does it sound harsh? Yes. But at this point, we have to turn our attention from caring for the individual who's sinning to caring for every other member of the church who remains. 
We had a situation years back where a person, and oh my goodness, if you looked at this person, you would go, this person is a disciple of Jesus if there ever was one. He invited people to church. He shared his faith. He served on a serving team. He led small groups. And when he wasn't leading one, him and his uh, wife attended one. You would just look at them and you would go, these people are disciples of Jesus. Sadly, just like a sheep sometimes goes astray, this believer went astray and he began cheating on his wife. And not only did he begin cheating on his wife, he began being very public about it by posting pictures to his social media of him and his mistress uh, interacting in a romantic way. All the while professing to be a follower of Jesus and praising the Lord that he brought this mistress into his life. Naturally, we went through the process laid out here in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, regarding the confrontation of a believer who strayed. And despite our best efforts, despite us applying a little bit of pressure, and then a little more pressure, and then a little more, and then a little more, we were not able to get this person to the place where he would repent. And so we had to do exactly what Jesus tells us to do, excommunication shunning. This person was no longer welcome to worship with us at the church, nor did any of us continue to uh, interact with this person on a social basis. Now, it's not what we wanted to do, but let's think about it. If he had remained here at the church, the Apostle Paul says a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, just as yeast spreads through a batch of dough, so a sinning person's influence spreads in a negative way throughout the church. And as a pastor, you have to protect the people from a negative spiritual influence. Now, we've just thought about the effect of this person and the effect that they had on the believers at the church. But now let's discuss the effect this person was having on the unbelieving community who was watching everything he was doing. Non-Christians, they're looking for an excuse to reject God. And when they see a Christian practicing hypocrisy, they say, there it is. Christians are all hypocrites. There's my excuse. I'm justified in rejecting God. They don't even take it seriously. Why should I? It damages the reputation of Christ and it damages the reputation of our church. As this person, again, on social media was loud you know, and proud about being a disciple of Jesus and all this stuff. And at the same time was living an open, outright, blatant, unrepentant sin. So you see, for the sake of the believers in the church, for the sake of the unbelievers outside of the church, we needed to excommunicate and shun. And that's what Jesus says is what we are to do because that gives us the best possible chance of the person coming to their senses. Remember what happened with the prodigal son? He went away and he had to end up working for a farmer and dealing with the pigs and he didn't have enough money to eat and he was sharing the food with the pigs and just being away from his family and the love and the support and the benefits of family, that is the very thing that helped him come to his senses and return to his father. And that is the heart behind excommunication and shunning. It helps people to come to their senses. Today we call it tough love. That's just a name we've given to the process that Jesus lays out for us in our text today. Okay, so far, we got to move on. So I wish I had like three hours to teach you guys sometimes. This is one of those topics I've just, I'm way overstudied uh, in comparison to the time uh, that I have to share. Uh, so, so let's move on. Uh, so far, we've seen this, the precedent of church discipline. 
the purpose of church discipline, the process of church discipline, and now, fourthly and finally, the protests of church discipline. The protests. Although Jesus is unequivocally clear that this is a process that you and I, every single one of us who are followers of Jesus, ought to participate in, he anticipates our many objections and protests to doing so. And that is what Jesus addresses in verses 18 to 20. He's going to give us his response to three unstated but implied objections that his followers would have to doing what he said in verses 15, 16, and 17. All right, here's protest number one and see if any of you can relate to this as you think about confronting another believer. But I'm a sinner. Jesus, how in the world would you ever want to use me to confront someone else's sin when I myself am a sinner? Oh, whoo, thank God I am excused. If everyone who is a sinner was excluded from participating in the process, how many people would that leave us to participate in the process? So do you think you can really use this excuse, but I'm a sinner? No, absolutely not. Nevertheless, if that is your protest, here is Jesus's reply to you. Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly, I say to you. Now listen, anytime Jesus says, truly, I say to you, he's cueing you that what he's about to say next is super important. And he's saying, don't tune out, don't miss this. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Clear as mud, right? You ever been confused by this verse? Well, here's the deal. In the time of Christ, to bind something was a way that they would uh, speak of something that was being forbidden. And when they used the term loosing something, that was the way in which they spoke about something that was permitted. Therefore, what Jesus is telling us in the context of church discipline is this. Yeah, I realize that you're going to like want to protest, but I'm a sinner too. And I'm, Jesus is saying, nevertheless, despite your sinfulness, I have given you the authority as well as the responsibility to make judgment calls concerning what behavior in the church is permitted and forbidden. Binding and loosing, it's not just for the pastors, because every single one of us has access to the word of God, which is our standard, and we therefore are capable, and more than capable, we are charged by God with the responsibility, despite our own shortcomings, to go ahead and chase after the person who is straying, letting them know God's judgment concerning right and wrong, what is permitted, what is forbidden in a community of faith. Okay, protest number two is this, but, but Jesus, I don't know what to say. Jesus, I wouldn't do it properly. I just know I wouldn't. I would botch it up. So you'll forgive me, Lord, but I need to be excused. If that's your protest, here is Jesus's reply in verse 19. Jesus says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. 
Now, those in the heretical prosperity theology camp love to take this verse and manipulate it and twist it and divorce it from its immediate context. And they say, yeah, just, just agree together with someone else. Now you'll have wealth and health and prosperity. And oh my goodness, talk about heresy. Friends, the context is church discipline. And the scenario being described here relates to the scenario that was described in verses 15 and 16. And what was that scenario? Jesus says, hey, you go and you confront someone one-on-one. And they are not receptive to your correction. So now you got to go get one or two other believers so that you can come back for a second confrontation. But when you go grab a friend or two to come with you, you tell them, hey, I already spoke to this person individually and it didn't go well. So guys, let's just get together. Let's just, let's just pray real quick. That meeting two will go better than meeting one. And so you bow your heads, you put your arms around each other and you say, Heavenly Father, would you just give us wisdom? We had one meeting and the words we used and the things we said, it just, it didn't go over how we thought it would. And, and God, we're, we're heartbroken by this, but Lord, we know that you don't want anyone to perish. You want everyone to come to repentance. And we understand that you've called us to fulfill this obligation before you. So God, in this second meeting, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us the words? Would you guide us? Would you direct us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And Jesus says, when you pray that prayer, that is a prayer that God the Father is going to listen to and is going to answer. In other words, what's being promised here is not you know, health, wealth, and prosperity, what's being promised here is that if you ask God for wisdom while you're living out the process of church discipline, trying to help a straying believer to get back on track, God is going to give you wisdom to do it if you ask him. And this accords with what the apostle James teaches in James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and God will give generously to all who ask so long as when they ask, they don't doubt. That's what's going on here. So the second protest is also out. I don't know what to say. You can't use that because if you ask God, he'll tell you what to say and he will help you by giving you the words. All right, here's the third and final common protest that we'll cover. But Jesus, I'm scared. I think the person's gonna get upset with me. I think they're gonna lash out at me. I think they're gonna accuse me of being holier than thou. And I'm afraid of what they're going to say to me, what they're going to say about me. I'm fearful of their anger. Jesus, I'm scared. Can you please send someone else to help? Well, if that's your protest, here is Jesus's reply found in verse 20. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, growing up, I thought this was the verse to quote when I was at a prayer meeting and it was only me and one other person who showed up. I thought we were supposed to encourage each other with this verse. Hey, where two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus is with us. Well, friends, that was foolish because that was to take this verse and divorce it from its immediate context. Even if you're the only person who showed up, Jesus said, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So Jesus is with us, whether it's one person, two people, 500 people, or a thousand. He's always with us. So that cannot be what this means. So what does it mean in the context of church discipline? Jesus is saying, I know it's scary to engage in this process. So be comforted by the reality that when you go through it and when you're in the meeting, I myself am there with you. So when you take verses 18 to 20 together, it's an encouragement, three different encouragements from Jesus to the believer who would be reticent to engage in the process. He says, you need to engage in it anyway, because number one, heaven approves of what you're doing. You've been given authority to bind or to loose. Number two, be encouraged by this. God the Father will help you by giving you wisdom to guide you through the conversation. And number three, be encouraged because I'm going to be there with you. You will not be alone. So friends, back to what we covered last week. Every single person, every single believer is a an invaluable treasure in God's eyes. Remember last week, Jesus said, do not despise a believer who strays. Do not treat them as if they have no value by passing them by and by ignoring them as they just walk away from the Lord. God views every believer as an invaluable treasure. And friends, what do we do when we lose something that's valuable? We go looking for it. We go after it and we try to get it back. I close with this. Last year, I had this fiasco with my health insurance company. Every, I got five kids and a wife and pretty much we go to the doctor every other second. And so medical bills, they just come in, they come in. They, it's just, it's a weekly thing. Pay the medical bill, pay the medical. And you know, I'm a busy guy. And sometimes I go, look, there's money in the account. I'm not looking into the bill. I'm just paying it. Last year was an exceptionally busy year for me. And that's, I just kind of got in that routine. I didn't look as closely as I should. Well, along the way, I realized I have never paid this much in all my life for medical bills. What the heck is going on? I think at this point, it was up to like $6,000 worth of out-of-pocket. And I'm like, I have insurance. It's never supposed to go past this amount. And I'm way the heck past it over here. What is going on? And though I was so busy and didn't really have time to be looking into all this, I had to pause and go, what is going on? So I began making phone calls and I looked into it and I found out, long story short, to make a long story boring, I found out that I had overpaid thousands and thousands of dollars. The providers were sending me the bill for me and for the insurance company combined. Yeah, sometimes these things happen to a preacher just so that he has a good illustration to share with you the word of God. You're welcome. So what did I do? I went after that money. It wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. I had to call every single week. I'm talking to someone new. Every single week, it's a new frustration. Oh, you can't help me. Shocker. If you're calling to give money to them, everyone's available to talk. If you're calling because you want money from them, nobody can help you. You got to go through 87 layers 
of customer service to get to the person you need to get your money back. It was inconvenient. But you know what? It was a great treasure that I was trying to recuperate. So it was worth it. Now, friends, if we'll do that for dollars, shouldn't, be, shouldn't we be willing to do it for destinies? Is the money we lost by overpaying a bill more valuable to us than a person who was created in the image and likeness of God that God values as a treasure, as the apple of his eye? Should we not likewise go after the straying believer who's been caught up in some sin? Friends, it's what God has called us to do. It's not the pastor's job exclusively. It is the shared job of every believer. So just like you go after that money and try to get it back, though you're not trying to be the Holy Spirit police looking for every violation in someone else's life, when something comes across your desk, you got to go after them and you got to try and get them back for God. And today, if you're ready to step up to the plate and play your part and say, I understand that Jesus was speaking to his disciples about what it's supposed to be like in the church. And I know that his instruction to them is also his instruction to me. So I want to step up. I want to play my part. I want to help a Christian community be the kind of community that Jesus said he desired to see it be. And if you want to reject cancel culture, which is what our culture teaches, and you want to adopt a Christ culture, which we read about in Scripture, then I want to invite you to join me in our closing prayer. So if you'd like to, would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And not out loud, but in your heart, maybe you'd say something along these lines to God. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that you would give me your heart for the straying believer. Part of me not approaching them is that I don't view them the same way you do. I view them as an irritant, but you view them as an invaluable treasure. God, would you replace my heart of stone with a heart of flesh? God, would you help me to see them with your eyes, not mine? And I pray today, forgive my indifference. Forgive me for practicing hatred, thinking it was love. Forgive me for despising straying believers. God, I repent of this sin, and I ask for your help moving forward to do things differently. God, I'm afraid to practice what I've learned today. But I ask that the spiritual need of the straying believer would totally eclipse all my fears. And that your love welling up within my heart would overflow, moving me to action. Help me to trust you, God, that you know best what to do in situations like this. And help me to obey and by faith trust you with the results. And God, I pray that you would use me to bring straying believers back to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Mike. We just learned about church discipline. What to do if a fellow believer in the church has started straying from God? But there are some of you here today, it might be your first time at New Day, might be your first time at church or your first time in a long time, and you're not yet a believer. So before we go today, I just want to take a minute to share with you what we believe in. And that's the good news, the good news that Jesus brings. 
But in order to understand the good news, first we've got to talk about the bad news. And the bad news is that we're all sinners. We're all guilty of sin, which is rebellion against God. And in our rebellion, the Bible says that the penalty for that is an eternal spiritual death, eternal separation from God. But the good news is that God never wanted us to have to pay this penalty. God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, down to earth to live a sinless life and to die on the cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will receive eternal life instead. When Jesus lived a sinless life and still died, he wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for our sins. He died for my sins and he died for your sins as well. And all we need to do to accept Jesus' death as a payment for our sins is ask him to forgive us. When we say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, make me new, he will, he'll forgive you. And now instead of having to worry about eternal separation from God, you'll get rewarded with eternal life with God. And that is the good news of the gospel that we all believe in. Now, some more good news is it's super, super easy to do that. You can say that prayer right now to Jesus. You can ask him right now to change your life, to change your trajectory, and he will. He'll forgive you and you'll have that. But the question is, will you? If you want to make that decision today and you haven't yet, I'd love it if you could take out your welcome card, check off the box that says, I've decided to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. If you're in person, take that over to guest services. We're going to give you a Bible. We're going to pray with you. We're going to congratulate you because that's the best decision that you could ever make. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you, and we hope to see you again real soon.